Dakota St. Clair, and I'm joined by my two fabulous, beautiful co-hosts. V to the... No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's Vince. <laughs> and I'm the other one. Oh, no. I gave, you two, I gave you two Daffy. solid, nice ones. No, they were really they were. nice. That one was good. I thought you were going to actually do it. And then I was like, I, thought I, about it. I can't do it. My name it is, was gonna be so has long, 700 though. letters in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I started and I was like, wow, it's already been a long it's time. It's already so taking start. forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, my God. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to When God Was Queer. We are doing another episode focused on a, a God. And we what? Are- Wait, this episode is about a god? What's yes. going on? This Usually we only talk about horses. And, and, you know, it's like, that's all it is. Um, the unknown god? The unknown god? Um, <laughs> who is it? Who is it? It's who me, it? Aphrodite. <laughs> Aphrodite. <laughs> I'm so sorry for my bad Aphrodite impression. Um, so... <laughs> So we're going to talk about Aries today, and it's the week of my birthday, so I'm super excited that we get to talk about Aries for my birthday, because I'm an Aries. I'm the last day of Aries, which is always really hard, because like I wake up on my birthday, and I'm like, let's fucking go! And it's like... <laughs> Everyone's like, Taurus season. Girl, there's 22 <laughs> hours left of Aries yeah. season. Like, yeah, make, <laughs> make, up, make out of it what you want, but like that's about it. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about Aries, and also we'll get to talk about Mars and a whole bunch of other really, really cool shit. So um, we are going to start basically just with origins, like we always do. Uh, But here's the thing. There are several common myths which explain Aries' origin, which means we're starting out our episode with... Choose your, Choose your own, own adventure. adventure. Wow, it's, that's a fun way to start an episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Dun, 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 dun. Option that's one: the, the child of Zeus and Hera. <laughs> Option two: the child of Hera alone, born from her rage and spite at the seemingly motherless birth of Athena. <laughs> option three: pick option one or two. But then Ares is nursed by Thero, who was the daemon of feral beastly nature but was said to be as quote beautiful as moonbeams okay three <laughs> yeah i mean three, why, why did you obviously. say the other two no, the other two are <laughs> you have to pick one or two and then you optionally add three i feel like it's like two three two, two and three. three no one three come on oh i'm a two three down <laughs> i think I'm, it's I'm, two three i'm all one, about three. rage birth is 100 percent rage wheelhouse. birth is sick but isn't there like also a version of the story where Typhon is rage birthed by Hera? Is that true? She rage births. There's just rage. Everybody. That's what she does. Yeah. That's her thing. Okay. The only person so who is isn't rage birthed in out. any of the tellings is Hebe because she's an accidental <laughs> lettuce birth. So it's just that. <laughs> which is which is why okay, which is why I think one three is the one that I like because I like I think Typhon though terrible. And not terrible in terms of value. Terrible is in like literally terrible, like the definition of the word. Like Ivan, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
the terrible is is sick right like that's dope as fuck um aries in terms of like being capable of being that cool but then like being not that cool <laughs> not that cool i feel like makes sense with like the energy between those two and like what their relationship would actually produce that's in terms accurate. of an air i mean given the fact that like Compared to Athena, Ares, as you're going to learn, is basically the redheaded stepchild. I definitely think that that makes a lot of sense. Again, another way in which I relate. As a redheaded stepchild, I absolutely relate to that. Um, so, uh, let's talk about our initial thoughts are kind of like, what are you walking in with? What are your thoughts on Ares? You know, obviously we've already done our M4 episodes, so you know he's not necessarily got the greatest stats. But... <laughs> You know, he's not batting a thousand, but what he's are your thoughts on him in general? Though. He's holding the bench down. I thought you called him a bitch monster. I did too. I was like, so bitch into monster? That. That's my whole gender identity. Yeah. A bunch of bitch monsters in here. <laughs> bitch monster supreme is what I'm changing all of my social media to. I mean, Aries is kind of a bitch monster. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's out of control. Um literally. Literally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, I don't know. I you know, as a child I was like not really attracted to Aries just cuz that's not like uh that wasn't like really my vibe back then anyway, but I was like respect, cool. I like swords. So, uh, right. <laughs> like we can agree on that. Like swords are sick. You think swords are sick? cool we can oh, have coffee i don't know for me i'm like yeah the swords thing has a different meaning i'm like <laughs> who else had your first gay awakening oh. looking at the greek gods <laughs> um, and yeah, even no, then i preferred daddy aries i was not about twink aries i was like no 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 what is this where so yeah i wonder what did what did aries look like to you all all I remember was it didn't matter if he had clothes on or not. He had on a helmet and a shield and a sword. Yeah, totally. Huh. Helmet. Which was like the only way you knew it was him, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess. He's a little bit I, generic I, looking to me, I suppose. So that's the thing is like by the time I, I think like a lot of the, the perception. Dog, my dog wants to be on the podcast so bad. <laughs> Your dog just made the wettest mouth noise right into the mic. What's your dog's name again? Otis. Otis. Oh, look Hilarious. at how sad he looks. Oh, lover. Oh, oh the lover. Eli's on the way home, and he's like, I'm bored. Oh, oh he's going to, you know what? We'll make sure he's a special guest on the Hecate episode, but we this won't, is, we yeah. won't sacrifice him. But, you know. <laughs> no, he's actually, no, no. he's too old. How old is he? Two. Oh, he's too old. Yeah, it has to be a puppy to be sacrificed to Hecate. You made it. You made it, Otis. You made, you it. made it. Now we're now yeah, we're stuck with you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, technical dif dog difficulties. That's okay. All right, go um, for it. So we, you know, we we kind of tackled like what he looks like, but what do you guys think he's in charge of? Specific. Okay, so like war. Well, other right, than war, yeah, war stuff. Yeah, but, but like beyond but like specifically bloodlust, uh, like something to do with passion, like okay. unchecked passion, right? But I already said bloodlust. Is there anything uh, with like? <laughs> I feel like there's got to be something with like cities or places or something because of yeah, like yeah. conquering. You know? 
like the the act of conquering like yeah. uh, territorial expanse or something. I guess that's what I mean, like territory, like play, like locations or something. Yeah. So I'm gonna... aggression. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna blow your mind a little bit. I know that you know I've sort of painted him as the very far extreme a lot of a lot of those things. And to be fair, he is a god of extremes. However, he is a dual natured god. If you want to put it one way. In another way, he is the that extreme, and if properly placated, becomes the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, he ruled over battlefields and armies, the works of warfare, troop formation, and his name was lit a literal synonym for war. And soldiers who <laughs> fell in battle were said to have been taken by Ares. It was also thought he would feast on the blood of the fallen. Bloodlust. He... Yeah, right. He presided over the sacking of cities, the destruction of nations, but most of all, he was the source (laughs) and the inspiration for deep-rooted passions, lusts, and emotions, which led to violence. He was the author of bloodlust, vengeance, hatred, rage, and violent impulses. Oh, that's so cool. That is cool. However, if properly placated, Ares was also the solution to all of these. You see, more than anything, Ares was, like I said, a god of extremes. If you properly placated him, he would, in turn, defend your city from being sacked. He would ward off warfare. He would quiet down the drive to spill blood in the heart of the warriors, even being able to cause fear, cowardice, or retreat. Like every other Olympian god, he could give and he could take away. His main role, essentially, was that he was supposed to be the embodiment of masculinity in terms of masculinity being broken down to vitality, virility, and courage. But at the same time, like I said, he could cause fear, cowardice, and betrayal in those who crossed him. Ares was also a god of civil order, but here, again, only in extremes. He was the patron of the military... He was also uh, the protector and the patron of armed guards and the ancient version of police forces. However, if a city should displease Ares, then he was ACAB as fuck and would gladly inspire riots, rebellions, and uprisings of the most violent kind. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's a lot different than I imagined. I mean, I guess that part (laughs) makes sense, but the opposites thing is interesting. Yeah, I think it's wild that he can be both because I think we kind of almost define him by him not being able to have both because I think by having both we maybe we think of balance and he's still not balanced he only seesaws it never balances out you know it's just a pendulum swing between extremes and basically it's all determined by what kind of standing you have with him but it's cool that he's like his own anti-venom also right right which, I mean, it makes sense. So, in terms of depiction, Ares was most often depicted as beardless, a beautiful youth, naked except for his plumed helm, spear, and shield. Now, in other depictions, he's more mature, and he's wearing full armor. Basically, the thing that you want to know is, he looks like a classic Greek warrior. Warrior. Which, yeah. and, and it was really interesting you said generic. That's true. And that actually led to a lot of trouble distinguishing him in a lot of ancient Greek art between just like warriors and like where is Ares and all of this. Like specifically him, yeah. <laughs> right, right. He did have attributes, however. 
symbols and objects which were sacred to him, which could help identify him. Aside from his classic armor, he was often seen with a dog, as well as a crow or a vulture. Cool. He ruled over all the wild, dangerous animals to a certain extent, but most of all scavengers who would come to feast after a battle had ended. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's also cool. important to note that the vulture, as well as some other birds, were seen as an omen of war, misfortune, and destruction, and the ancient practice of augury, where you would study the sky and the movements and flights of birds, would also be a big part of that. So if you witnessed certain types of birds, it meant certain types of things. So his sacred birds were often seen as, like, the oh, there's someone, there's literally an army marching towards us because a vulture just landed in the middle of the fucking thing that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. His most sacred animal, however, was the serpent. And he liked to hang out with some chonky boys, too. <laughs> his most famous, quote-unquote, snakes, uh, which may have also been his sons, were the Colchian dragon, which he set to protect the Golden Fleece, and the Ismenian dragon, who guarded Ares' sacred spring near the city of Thebes. Then we have his retinue. So... We've previously discussed that many of the classical depictions of Ares show him standing in a chariot, accompanied by his consort Enyo, who is the goddess right. of war, bloodshed, and violence, and their two sons, Phobos and Deimos, the daemones of fear and terror. Now, I should also point out here, by the way, Phobos and Deimos are sometimes attributed to being Aphrodite's kids. However, it is certain that him and... Aphrodite had a daughter named Harmonia, which you can already guess is Harmony. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that they had three kids and it was like Harmony, Fear, and Terror, but like also, <laughs> oh, he may have had them with his like battle maiden who's in his chariot screaming out a war cry. You're like, okay, yeah, clearly she had Phobos and Deimos. And the Aphrodite other one. Had yeah. So, the, and of course you have to really think about it. Like, well, this is what was depicted on the Shield of Achilles. It was like this fearsome vision of violence you know descending on the earth and it's fearsome enough however it turns out there's actually a lot more death and chaos where that came from in some versions he has a complex entourage akin to like the wild hunt following him marauding over the battlefields so he would have with him kaidoimos which is literally the daimon who is the incarnation of the din of battle uh the makai <laughs> who are the battles like, yeah. just battles themselves. The Keres, you remember them, the Valkyries, right? right. The blood-soaked maidens. The Hisamini, the acts of manslaughter. Polemos, who is a minor spirit of war that's said to be a son of Ares, but also is an aspect or epithet of Ares. He only really matters because he has a daughter, and his daughter's name is Alala, and she's the personification of the Greek war cry. Hmm. Which oh. I just think is the baddest fucking thing. Yeah, that's thing. a fucking cool yeah, thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And Hebe, who I, is along for the ride, I guess. She's yeah. not yeah. She's not necessarily like on a battlefield, like just standing there with a cup. Like that's not her she thing. She's just but, following yeah. with the cup, yeah. No, so she, she's just like scooping up the blood. Here you go, Ares. Here, here's the blood. She's often included in the retinue because it was said that she would draw Ares' bath after a battle. She's just all kinds of useful. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of children, you know, like we already kind of touched on them. Ares is the lover of many and the father of even more. Some of his children you've heard of, like Phobos and Deimos. We already talked about them. But did you know that he's the father of the Amazons? Oh. I've heard that. Yes. He is the progenitor of the Amazons, and they had cool. special devotion to him. 
which is why, if you want to know why Athena always kind of has it out for the Amazons, yeah, it's because of that. <laughs> also, my favorite of his children is Sithon, who reigned as king of Thrace and was said to be able to change gender at will, even being able to fully shapeshift into animals later in life. Wow. And Sithon has no mom. So apparently Ares just like, was like, I guess I want a kid who could like be a whole bunch of stuff. Whatever I want. Boom. You know, like. It's like if I just have this one. Yeah. (laughs) Bang on your shield three times, spit some blood into a pile of dirt. Oh, here comes my kid. You know, like, I don't know. Whatever the ritual was. So Phobos and Deimos are actually really, really cool. And if you don't know, they're the inspiration for Hades' two little weird henchmen in the Disney movie one of whom is voiced by Bobcat Goldwaith. But basically, they were the gods and the personifications of fear and terror. Now, Deimos represented terror and dread, while his brother Phobos represented panic, flight, and rout. Rout is when you, like, fight off your enemy enough that they retreat, right? They were sons of the war god who accompanied their father into battle, driving his chariot and spreading fear in his wake. Now, it's surmised that if they are the sons of Aphrodite, then they also represent the fear of loss. Mm. Um, And of course, Phobos is where we get the word phobia from. Like, there's long-standing stuff here. In classical art, the two were usually depicted as unremarkable youths, although sometimes Phobos was given the head of a lion or leonine features. Which, like... Yes, please. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I can't imagine being the other brother that just looks normal. Uh, just a guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> All right, here we go. We're riding into battle. Scare everybody. And your brother just <laughs> roars like a lion. And you're like, ah! And then, like, Alala, the war cry, lets out a real war cry next to you. Yeah. And you're like, son of a bitch! Like, I'm coming! <laughs> yeah. It's also really interesting because Phobos and Deimos, when they're, like, not charging into war, were apparently, like, members and, like, bros of Dionysus's retinue. Oh. And would, like, maraud through the forests and the plains, just getting shit-faced and tearing things apart. That well, kind of, sounds... I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> like, soldiers on leave. Yeah. Do you remember King Lycos, the one that got turned, him and his 50 sons got turned into wolves because they tried to trick Zeus into eating yeah. human flesh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a son of Ares. <laughs> that's where all of his grandsons. Oh, <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. There's Enyalios, who is a minor god or spirit of war and supposed to be like an intendant of Ares. This is supposed to be one of the children of him and Enyo, but basically it also became a really popular epithet of Ares. So if there was a separate god, it wasn't for long that we mm. know of. Gotcha. And of course, uh, there was Harmonia. Now, Harmonia <laughs> was the goddess of harmony and discord. She's just real, you know, here for a chill time. She was a daughter of Ares and Aphrodite, and as such, she presided over marital harmony, and she soothed strife and discord in the home. And she ruled over all harmonious actions of soldiers in war. So she wasn't conflict-averse. She just wanted it to be organized. Yeah. This is just like, and then I get that domain. Like, if you have to go to the the office on Mount Olympus to like get your domain papers, mm-hmm. for I imagine Hera has to stamp off on that somewhere, and for Hera to have to stamp off on your papers for you to be the goddess of harmonious marriage, based on your parents, that's wild, disrespectful. Well, the thing is, is 
like she there's a lot of deities who touch on similar things but then there's usually one deity who like presides over it the the main one yeah so like if you remember hermaphroditus who was supposed to be hermes and aphrodite's kid hermaphroditus was like presided over weddings because it was the blending the of merging. male and female. Yeah, like, so there was, there's quite a few other ones as well. Um, yeah, I just mean, like, Harmonia is, like, coming from Ares and Aphrodite. Oh, and yeah. Getting to be <laughs> the, the goddess of Harmonia's marriage. So, Harmonia had two daughters. Leucothea, who was a sea goddess, who came to aid sailors in distress. Nice. Yeah, that's nice, cute. right? Yeah. Um, she actually played a part in the Odyssey. She is the sea goddess who comes to the aid of Odysseus when his raft has been destroyed by Poseidon, and she wraps oh. him in her shawl, and it mm. can float. Yeah. Floating yeah. shawl. It's like a yeah. life oh. vest. Yeah. It's the first life vest. There you go. Yeah. She also had another daughter named Semele. Oh. Wild. Wait, what? Wild. Yeah. So Dionysus is apparently Ares' nephew. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, it's all a mess. It's all a mess. I know. That's such a mess. I know. (laughs) What? I did not know Simile was. But then it kind of makes sense, though, for Phobos and Deimos, because, like, that's their cousin they grew up with. So, like, when he's, like, a rock star, they're like, yeah, we're going on tour with our cousin. You know, like, (laughs) it kind of makes sense. (laughs) And then, of course, we have the Arotes. If you don't remember, there is the, there's Eros and his, like, boy band, of super <laughs> gay winged nude people <laughs> who like handle all kinds of like love and longing and what goes on with that. So they were undoubtedly the children. Like remember we talked about in our very first episode where we talked about Eros and we were like, wait a minute, what about the other Eros? And that would be the child of Aphrodite and Ares. Ares. Yeah. Ares, by the way, his character and his worship kind of could fluctuate by locale. And and this is true for everyone that we've covered so far. But we actually have some really good evidence on what happened with Ares in different places. So the whole reviled thing is much more Athenian, much more sort of like mainstream, if you will, sort of tellings, right? However, in Sparta, predictably enough, (laughs) Ares was viewed as a model soldier. His resilience, physical strength, and military intelligence were seen as unrivaled. An ancient statue representing the god in chains suggested that martial spirit and victory were to be kept in the city of Sparta. The Spartan love for Ares was seen as a prime example of the cultural divisions that existed between themselves and other Greeks, especially the Athenians. And in Scythia, there was a god who was equated with Ares, who was uh, talked about by Herodotus. However, unlike all the other Scythian gods that Herodotus talked about, he gave the name of the Scythian version, but he didn't do that for Ares' god, which made a lot of people think, like, well, wait a minute, is there a facsimile there? Like, is there a different god, or is there Mm. not? Like, what is this? Um, because he doesn't offer any indigenous name for the deity in a list of these where he gives the indigenous name of every other deity. Huh. Um, Interesting. And so this god, who we'll call Ares for ease sake, uh, while ranking beneath the sort of like the top three gods in the divine hierarchy, was apparently worshipped differently from other Scythian gods and thus was seen as more major and was worshipped with statues and complex altars devoted to him, which... What does that sound like? It sounds like Greek. Yeah. They didn't do that with any of their other gods. Oh, oh. Yeah. 
So this so is like the one guy. There's been a lot that. of like, well, how the hell would Ares have gotten out there like by the time Herodotus got there? Like, what is this? Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, the Scythians were like the horse folk, right? Yes. They're, they're supposed to be, if I remember correctly, they're supposed to be the ones where it's theorized they're the origin of centaurs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, noting, now, um, remember we said like Amazons are devotees of Ares, right? Mm-hmm. right. This was most likely based on Scythian warriors, uh, the ones that weren't on horses, uh, because researchers have considered the possibility that there was a Scythian warrior woman cult of this deity that existed. And so oh. that's a really interesting thing. There's also this yeah. whole thing about the sword of Mars and like all the different things that can mean. Yeah. And uh, there's been thoughts that going further out from Scythia, but in that direction that the sword of Mars could allude to the Huns even having adopted this deity. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Which is not like wild to think. Because if you actually look at the right, history, yeah. like the Huns had the biggest empire out of anybody. People were like, ever. they're Romans. And it's like, have you seen the fucking Huns? Because yeah. that could have been it all. That could have been everything. And then there's also worship of Ares in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Ares was worshipped by the inhabitants of Telos. Uh, it's not known if he was worshipped in the form of an Arabian god or which one, or if he was worshipped in his Greek form. What we do know is that the Suda writes that at Petra, there was a god worshipped called Theus Ares, meaning the god Ares. Yeah. Um, and that uh, there was a black stone statue on a gold plinth, four feet tall and two feet wide, meant to represent him. And that these people offered sacrifice and poured forth the blood of the sacrificial animals. And the whole house was rich in gold and had many like votive offerings, meaning the temple. Like it was heavily yeah. adorned. So they're like, huh, like, how is this deity called Theus Ares? Like, that's a Greek name. So it's interesting, like, how far reaching his stuff went. Because yeah. the last place we're going to touch on is Ethiopia. And Ethiopia, there was Marem, who was the principal god of the kings of Aksum prior to the 4th century AD. And Marem, who was the principal god, was to the Greeks always... Uh, conflated with Ares, like always syncretized with Ares, right? In their Greek inscriptions, however, the kings invoked Ares, the kings themselves, the Ethiopian kings, invoked Ares in bilingual inscriptions where the Ethiopic has Marem, the Greek will always have Ares. The anonymous king who put up the monumentum uh, adulatanum in the late second or early third century refers to which was, this was like a monument of, adul- of adulation, right? For Ares. Or they were like, well, what god is it? Is it Marem? Is it Ares? Because they kind of got similar in their depiction. He had an inscription written by the king that said, my greatest god Ares, who also begat me, through whom I brought under my sway various peoples. Oh, sick. The various peoples <laughs> is inserted. He actually lists all of the people that he conquered. Ah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the monumental throne celebrating the king's conquests was itself dedicated to Ares. In the early 4th century, the last pre-Christian king of Aksum referred to uh, it as, or, or referred to Ares as, quote, the one who brought me forth, the invincible Ares. Huh. Wild, oh. right? He's all over the place, Ares. That's crazy. It's just weird because when you think about it, you're like, yeah, it would totally make sense for like Athena to get this far and wide. And and by all right. accounts, she did. You know what I mean? Her and you Artemis and a that. lot of other gods are like all over the place. Everywhere, like, yeah. Wow. 
But you don't think about it for Ares. No, not really at all. Yeah. Considering how we think the Greeks thought about him, we're like, what? But, I mean, it's also... I guess it would make sense to a certain extent if you think about the fact that, like, how did they encounter all these different peoples? Oh, they encountered them through warfare. War, yeah. So if they left a uh, god behind to commemorate their victory with an offering or a temple. That's the one you're going to meet, yeah. Probably who you're going to do. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Still weird, though, because I don't think of him as being that relevant in that way. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. I think, like, the... it's Yeah, I guess it's, like... It's also, you know, from trade and stuff like that, that's, like, some of the things you would hear on the other side, too, of, like, those civilizations. Yeah. Like, they're hearing that being invoked. Uh, so that's, yeah, going to be one of the first gods they meet. Which is weird because, yes, I think it would be the first one that they meet because of the warriors. Because who are the warriors going to invoke? They're going to invoke Ares. Right. But when they actually go to build the temple afterwards, usually when they would do that, it would be Athena holding yeah. winged victory. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, well, how the hell did all these people get built? it's not war anymore. Built? Now it's victory, yeah. Unless maybe, maybe it was wherever they were going in these different places. What if they were just preferred a male god? Yeah. For yeah. war. And they were like, or well, we got one of those too. You know what I mean? Like, it could be that. Yeah, that's true. How but, old is Ares, though? Ares is considered to be like a progenitor god, not just by the Romans, but by several of the Greek city-states. So it's not necessarily... I don't know that Ares goes back to Mycenae. Um, I don't think that he does. But I think he gets pretty close. I don't think he's just like one of the ones that popped out once Olympus happened. I think he definitely predates that. But he doesn't go back as far as like, say, Aphrodite or, you know, a lot of the other ones. Got you. Yeah, because then I wonder if that, like, you know in the story wise it's just like a different time where Ares had more influence in terms of like who people were listening to like you know like how yeah. there's like these stories don't really have time to them no right yeah. so like it's like this could be theoretically before Athena even gets Athens um where people are learning Ares's name um and I like mean also it changes it's kind of this war that we're noticing of like well who's the wiser who's the yeah. more right. who, has, who has more war prowess you're going to hear Ares and Sparta, and you're going to hear Athena and Athens. So, you know, it's not necessarily... It just turns out that Athens was full of, you know, pansies People who were writing write. everything down. Writing everything <laughs> so, down, yeah. You know? Um, so, the next thing that we're going to talk about is Areti. So, buckle up, because it's going to be a whole lot of feelings. Uh-oh. Areti was the classic, classical Greek and sometimes by extension Roman equivalent to Yang, the pure virile energy of manhood. And in some places, it was believed to be passed upon, uh, passed unto a soldier entering manhood by his mentor comrade through ritual sex. Yeah, that sound. I knew where that was going. Yeah. <laughs> The Areti was carried in the phallus and contained in the sperm and was received anally by the initiate. This ritual initiation and transference of Areti was considered quite popular among certain groups, including the Coretis, who worshipped Apollo Carneus on the island of Thera. You know, listen, it takes a real man to bottom. I'll tell you that. Like, There you go. um, So... Next, we're going to talk about one of my favorite <laughs> myths with Ares. So if you wanted to, like, kind of get back to, like, I like it when Ares gets knocked on his ass, here you go. Here we go. <laughs> so you remember in the Gigantomachy how there was, like, you know, 
the two brothers that were climbing and they were like, we're going to fucking destroy everything and I'm going to make Hera my wife and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that apparently happened again. Uh, and Whoa. the two twin giants this time were called the Aloidae and their names were Otis and Ephialtes. And they wanted to ravage Mount Olympus and take Hera and Artemis as their wives. Fucking crazy. Otis. Oh, you better Uh-oh. get that dog in line. It's my dog. <laughs> they, <laughs> they tried to do so by piling three mountains on top of one another and climbing up to Olympus. Sound familiar? This has happened before. <laughs> Ares stepped forward and was the first to try to defeat the twins, but he was defeated by them because it was two on one and they're giants. And they not only uh, like picked him up and shook him like a ragdoll, they threw <laughs> him into a bronze urn and sealed it. <gasps> yeah. Oh. And he remained there, screaming and losing his mind for 13 months, an entire lunar year. <laughs> wow. And it's said that that would have been the end of Ares and his appetite for war if the beautiful Ereboea, the young giant's stepmother, had not clued Her- uh, Hermes into what had been done with the god of war. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, you know... She's like, hey, by the way, uh, is anybody? <laughs> I think your Which friend I think is. is so, uh, yeah. I think it's so funny though because she probably doesn't know like the whole ins and outs of the politics of Olympus. She probably tells Hermes and it's like, hey, is anybody uh, looking for Ares? And Hermes is probably <laughs> like, no, no. Last I heard, he was in Egypt trying to take war lessons. I don't know. I don't know where he's been. <laughs> She's like, yeah, he's in this urn. Uh, my kids, you guys killed that. Like, I didn't really like anyway. Yeah, they locked him in here. You might want to let him out because he stopped screaming like a month ago. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know. If, you know, they didn't poke air holes. They weren't really bright. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. But before that happened, uh, if you want to know how they were actually defeated, they were defeated by Artemis. Um, huh. She, oh. being much smarter than these two idiot twin giants, transformed <laughs> herself into a deer and ran between them. And they both tried to shoot her with arrows, but Artemis was swift and dodged them, causing each of the giants to shoot and kill each other. Amazing. Oh action movie. Yeah, right. it's, like a com- it's like a slapstick action uh, movie. So good. So now we can get down to Mars. Mars. Sound the motherfucking war trumpets. Daddy's here. <laughs> oh, Mars is my shit, man. All right. So we know Ares was truly loathed by man and God as despicable, at least according to the Athenians. For the Greeks, the highest morality was moderation in all things. And so they were constantly telling their stories in which man struggles to temper his more animalistic, instinctual nature, allowing cool logic to prevail. Enter Ares, who's the literal manifestation of wanton bloodshed, useless violence, untamed lust, savage brutality, slaughter, and vengeance at all costs. Now, contrast that with Mars. Where Ares was destruction and a threat to stability, Mars was the wise, steady-handed, strategically-minded god who encouraged military force as a method of securing peace. He was seen as the guardian of agriculture in that he protected Rome's food supply. But in a larger sense, he was the dignified exemplar of Romanness, the way of being Roman. And he was the uh, sort of image of their morals and their values. This contrast is also made evident in their depictions. You can make a pretty safe bet that when you see a naked youth with a helmet and a shield, it's Ares. But when you see a dignified, mature man with a beard and mustache, a cuirass and a military cloak, a helmet, shield, and spear, you're dealing with Mars. 
This later incarnation became the standard for Mars in later Rome as it exemplified his status as the sort of all-father or the ancestor of the Roman people. Hmm. So now we get down to his essential nature. The way that we talked about Areti, there was a similar concept with the Romans, uh, which was called vis, which means life force, or virtus, which means virtue. It basically just means virility. And it was an essential characteristic of Mars. He's an agricultural guardian. So, you know, that's where you're going to see that virility be like the energies that he directs towards basically allowing crops to grow, to grow. right? Yeah. And that could also be warding off hostile forces, forces of nature. He would be a guardian of livestock as well in this role, right? Now, the... Um, he, he also protected from a lot of other things. There were priests who would call on him to drive off rust, which is interesting because iron is his sacred metal. Yeah. Um, but rust had a double meaning for the ancient Romans. Uh, it could mean like red oxides that affect metal that we think of, right? But it could also mean wheat fungus and things that would like destroy crops as well. Hmm. So it could like threaten your farming tools and also your weaponry, but also your crops. All of those had to be protected from the same thing that they would call rust. That would cause deterioration, right? And so that was the whole thing, was that um, there's a surviving hymn where uh, Mars is invoked as ferus, meaning savage or feral, like a wild animal. And they call upon him to fight off the ravaging forces of, quote-unquote, rust. Hmm. Now, Mars, as I've described him so far, you're like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I thought Savage and Feral was all supposed to be Aries. The thing is, Mars did have a potential for savagery, but it was only expressed in his deep but somewhat obscure connections with wild woodlands. He had an attribute, which was Mars Sylvanus. And we haven't gotten there yet because we haven't gotten to Pan, but Sylvanus was a god uh, in ancient Rome who represented the untamed, untended, uh, agricultural, print-free earth that you had to be very careful of because it did not belong to man. It belonged to earth and its inhabitants. And Sylvanus was known to, like, you know, prey on lone travelers, was dangerous to children, represented the impenetrable depths of the forest that no human could get to, the wild animals that would attack you if you tried to enter. All of that was sort of this primal force that was called Sylvanus, who's way pre-Roman, by the way, and totally kind of cut from the same cloth as Mars. And so there's, of course, Mars Sylvanus, right? And interestingly, Cato, an uh, ancient Roman writer, had a book on farming, and he advised a ritual that was supposed to be carried out in Silva, meaning in the woods. It had to be an uncultivated place that was not within the bounds of a you know city, village, anything like that. And it was basically done to propitiate Mars Sylvanus in order to then have the land held back, right? Which cool. is really, I think, wild. Yeah, yeah that's, that's crazy. Cool. Yeah, so he also had a priesthood called the Sali, which are the jumping priests, if you've ever seen them. They would, like, jump over fire and clash spears on shields and all of that. And they were said to be, like, deeply apotropaic. They could ward off war. They could also excite the soldiers to war. But they also would sometimes do this to quicken the growth of crops. Like, they would do this over the fertile land in order for the seeds that were planted to definitely germinate and also grow strong and and quickly. 
I gotta be doing yeah, that. I'm just planting my garden. I like I, <laughs> I gotta learn this dance. <laughs> you gotta get a shield real, and a spear, fast. man. That's yeah. what it's all about. I have I have I mean I have lots of swords. I don't know about a shield and a spear, but I can probably figure it out. There you go. Yeah, I didn't know Mars was so heavily attached to like agriculture. For the Romans, for sure, yeah. Huh. I mean, the thing about Mars, though, is that Mars was, it, the best that we can tell, Mars is most likely a crystallization of a lot of pre-Roman spirits because the gotcha. word actually comes from, I believe it's Etruscan, but it might be like Sabine or Italic, Mars, and that was actually a collective of spirits that had to do with war, virility, protection, and all of that. And then they sort of, like, crystallized it under this one figure. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. But, I mean, from what I've researched about it, I'm pretty sure they were sort of, like, daimones. They weren't necessarily, like, fully-fledged gods that had their own cult or anything like that. They sort of got an upgrade by getting collapsed together and then right. becoming a fully-formed character, right? Which kind of seems like, you know, like uh, Ares' chariot, like the retinue. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because you don't really see that with Mars as much. I mean, you right. do see Bologna, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but you only kind of see Mars and Bologna. You don't right. necessarily see, like, the whole retinue the whole of gang, people. Right. right. Now, it appears also, by the way, just for funsies, Mars was probably originally a thunderer or storm deity, which uh -huh. is why he has those mixed traits with fertility as well. Interesting. And this was taken on by like Jupiter and others, but you got to remember for the Etruscans, they had nine gods that could wield thunder, and he was right. one of them. Thunder was a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thunder's sick. Yeah. So sacred animals. What would you say are the sacred animals to Mars? Knowing what you already know about Aries, they're not the same, but they're kind. Like, they're kind of in the same boat. I feel like an eagle. Okay. Uh, Seems like you'd have something more, that's more like a farm animal or something. I mean, just with all the agriculture. I was. Stuff. I feel like he may have dropped. Like Mars might not be really fucking with snakes. I don't know. I don't get like snake vibe from him. I don't get a snake vibe either. <laughs> Eagle is Jupiter and Zeus. Right. Ah. Um. So, but there is a bird. It's a gotta special be a bird. bird. Hawk. Woodpecker. Woodpecker? What? Woodpecker, which I'll get into in a second. That's but like the cutest, notice. though. No, they're attacking trees. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. They can fell a whole fucking tree with Just this phallus on their face. Just in an adorable way. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but do you notice how with Ares, I didn't say wolf, I said dog. Dog. This is a wolf. Dogs were sacred to Ares. The Greeks were fucking terrified of wolves. Oh, it's like a Batman thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the Romans, <laughs> the Romans were very much they like honored wolves and they venerated them because they love forget, wolves. Wolves are everywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that's the national wolf of fucking Italy still. Yeah, you know? I was gonna say Italy's still obsessed with wolves. Yeah, but that all that all of that literally comes from the ancient depiction of Lupa, who is the great she wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, the divine yeah. twins that founded Rome. So, which, by the way, they got that entire fucking thing from the Etruscans, um, because the babies <laughs> came later. If you actually, like, look, do the scientific testing on the statue, the babies came later. Lupa was already worshipped. She-wolves are the baddest. Okay. So, um, Mars <laughs> had essentially, like, three main sacred animals. Woodpecker, wolf, and bear. Okay? Wow. And bear. so, it's... Plutarch is the one who tells us the most about this whole woodpecker thing, which I think is so fucking cool. <laughs> So in, in describing the woodpecker, which the Romans called a picus, 
to and saying that it's sacred to Mars, he says, quote, because it is a courageous and spirited bird and has a beak so strong that it can overturn oaks by pecking them until it has reached the inmost part of the tree. Well, I, uh, I don't really think of woodpeckers like that, but I, it does make sense. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. That meant that people believe that a woodpecker's beak, which, by the way, woodpeckers came to become known as Picus Martius. Lol. For their Latin name. So yeah. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was they, they believed that the beak actually contained the god's power. Oh. And what? so they were carried as a magic charm. Oh my God. And it was thought that if you carried a woodpecker's beak like on you, that you would not have to deal with bee stings or leech bites. Okay. That's well, that's not going to go well for you if you get covered in leeches. <laughs> now, the Bird of Mars also guarded a woodland herb, paonia, which was used for treatment of various digestive ailments and various reproductive system ailments. And those who sought to harvest it were always advised to do so by night because woodpeckers lived around it and protected it. And it was thought they would jab out your fucking eyes if you tried to pick their favorite plant. Hilarious. That's amazing. Yes. And so the thing is, is even pre-Roman, we know the woodpecker was revered by a lot of the Latin peoples. They would abstain from eating its flesh. It was one of the most important birds in Roman and Italic augury. Remember the birds in the sky? You yeah. saw one of those? Major shit was going down. And there was even a mythological figure named Picus who had the powers of augury that he retained when he was temporarily transformed into a woodpecker. Woodpecker. Fucking woodpecker. And was said to be a son of Mars. So, cool. So, yes. I just think it's really, really cool to see all of that. Now, Mars' association with the wolf is, you know, obviously going to be super familiar to us. Like I said, there's Lupa, the she-wolf, who suckled his infant sons, the twins, Romulus and Remus, when they were left out to exposure. But the wolf did appear in a lot of other ways, though, too. The wolf, uh, obviously, I've, I think I've mentioned in the Etruscan, the uh, god of the underworld, Ida and Kalu, or Ida Kalu, are, yeah. like, woven. They either appear, like, with a wolf's head, head a wolf cap. Yeah. As a pack of wolves, they announce themselves with the howling of wolves. Like, they got that whole thing. It's <laughs> pretty so, awesome. Yeah. So the wolf would appear elsewhere in Roman art because it was meant to sort of be the, what some people would call, like, the stronger form, or they would call, like, the masculine form of the animal of Mars because the woodpecker wasn't, you know, with its tree-felling phallus face was not masculine enough, you know? <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, there was statuary that featured a lot of wolves. There was, even at the Battle of Sentinum in 295 BC, there was an appearance of the Martius Lupius, like literally the the wolf of Mars, on the battlefield. And this was seen as a sign that Roman victory was assured. Hmm. Fun fact, in Roman conquered Gaul, G-A-U-L, France... Yeah. The goose was associated with their form of Mars. Yo. And geese were buried alongside warriors in their graves because they had, Yo. like, watch warrior geese that they went into battle with. That's sick. Um, and the goose is obviously a great candidate because if you've ever dealt with one, you know they're easily provoked to aggression and they never calm down. I so... got bit by one when I was a kid. They're really not very nice. I love geese. They're sick. 
Yeah, but they're not nice <laughs> at all. They will yeah, bite you. Yeah, so cool, though. You can get, you can get like, guard geese for your chickens, because they'll fucking be like, I dare you to look at these chickens. I a honk, I dare you to look at these chickens. Oh, my well, God. Well, yeah, because chickens can't really defend themselves very well at all. They're just mostly idiots. Well, they're too busy eating each other, so I don't know that they're going to necessarily... It's real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, all right, so real quick, we're going to talk about <laughs> something I think is just wild that's also Battlefield Mars related, which is Evocatio. Now, you have to remember the Romans truly believed that they were the supreme civilization on Earth because they honored the gods better than any others. They literally had a temple to the unknown god just in case they had missed a god somewhere along the line. And it's also why they were pluralistic. They would incorporate and enshrine the gods of those that they conquered. At battle, before they would attempt to conquer a new city or new people, the Roman battle priests would perform a ritual called evocatio. Essentially, the patron deity, the city's protector, would be invoked and would be offered lavish sacrifices, beautiful temples, and a devoted cult if they would abandon their city. And join the Romans. Oh, wow. Uh, a little time would pass for them to make their decision. A divination would be done after the ritual. And if it confirmed that the god was changing loyalties, the Romans would let out a mighty victory cry. And those about to be invaded would very often just lay down arms and submit to the Roman legions because they were so utterly devastated and demoralized that their god had abandoned them. That's a really good hustle. You're just like our god. Your god's already on our side. That's sides. what I mean. Like That's even it. if it's you can say all the gods are they not real. It blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. psychological terrorism. And oh it's yeah, really good. That's like genius warfare. Like oh my god. And then we have the spear of Mars. Now it's really important to remember that like, and this kind of applies to Aries as well, but a lot more to Mars. That the spear was Mars' thing, right? Jupiter's got a lightning bolt. Neptune's got a trident. Saturn has a scythe or a sickle. Hades has, oh, Pluto has a uh, bident. You've got Mars. Mars has a spear, right? Spear. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a supposed relic that was kept in a sacrarium at the, reg, uh, at the Regia, the former residence for the kings of Rome. And it was said that this was the actual spear of Mars. And that it would move, tremble, or vibrate at impending war or other danger to the state. Oh. Um, and it was said that it vibrated so loud that it literally brought attention to itself after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Wow. When Mars is pictured as a peace bringer, though, the same spear is wreathed with laurels or other vegetation. And this was also done sometimes on coins or during festivals, stuff like that. So Pax Romana type shit. And then there, it's like, well, okay, how widespread was Mars' worship? Because we know, obviously, Aries was pretty widespread. Mars was all over the place. And Mars <laughs> had an altar at the Campius Martius, the Field of Mars, which was the area of Rome that took its name, you know, from him and was supposed to have been dedicated by Numa, the peace-loving, semi-legendary second king of Rome, who was an Etruscan and who was right. kind of credited for founding Rome's religion, Right. Oh. It was also an infamous cruising area for men who were looking for a little bit of man meat. So, <laughs> you know, good for you. It was also where Bologna's temple was situated. And the whole area had extraterritorial status, which means ambassadors from foreign states who were not allowed to enter the city proper would stay here. Since yes. the area of the temple was outside the Pomerium, the Senate met there with ambassadors and received victorious generals prior to their triumph parades. 
Hmm. Beside the temple was the war column, which represented non-Roman territory. And to declare war on a distant state, a javelin was thrown over the column by one of Mars' priests in the direction of wherever it was that they were about to attack. That's and so, that was considered wow. the opening of war. That's like the thing, yeah. Wow, that's, that's cool. super metal. I think that's fucking awesome. Yeah. You gotta have a good throwing arm, though. Okay. And then we have a couple epithets, just to kind of break down Mars for you. We have Mars Gradivus. Mars Gradivus is one of the gods who the generals and the soldiers would all swear their oaths to, right? Mm-hmm. And their oath, this oath specifically was to be valorous in battle, that they couldn't retreat, you know, none of that stuff. His temple, he had his own temple, and it's also where the Arby's gathered before setting out for from Rome to wherever they were mm. going to go. That's the meetup spot. Yeah. And this was also the specific face of Mars that the Sali, the leaping priests, would do their thing for. They would dance ritually in armor as a prelude to war. Cool. Yeah. His cult title, Mars Gradivus, Gradivus, is said to mean the strider or the marching god, because this is obviously Uh, where the army would march out from. mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's said Mm -hmm. that the, the poet Statius addressed him as, quote, the most implacable of the gods. But Valerius Maximus concludes his history by invoking Mars Gradivus as, quote, author and support of the name Roman. Huh. (laughs) And that's cool. It was even a thing for a while where uh, Capitoline Jupiter, Vesta, and Mars Gradivus were seen as the the triad that was set to guard, preserve, and protect Rome itself. Hmm. Then we have Mars Quirinus, who was the protector of the Curites, which are citizens or civilians. And they were divided into Curiae, which are citizen assemblies. And Mars Curinus had to be invoked in an oath to make any treaty. And as a guarantor of treaties, Mars Curinus was a god of peace. So there was this old quote in ancient Rome, when he rampages, Mars is called Gradivus. When he's at peace, he's called Curinus. The interesting thing is, is that like there was a whole cult of Romulus that it's thought became Mars Curinus. Oh. Yeah. There was also a Capitoline triad, uh, another one that was uh, Jupiter, Mars, and Curinus, because there was apparently a certain amount of time where Curinus was a separate deity, probably after Romulus got formalized. Mm. And then that just ended up getting subsumed under Mars. And then last but not least, we have, uh, oh, we have two more. We have Mars Potter, Father Mars, or Mars the Father, which of course would be like our ancestral father, And this god was actually invoked in the agricultural prayer of Cato, the one that we talked about earlier, um, and appears in a lot of literary texts and inscriptions. And he's among several gods invoked in the ritual of devotio, by means of which a general would sacrifice himself and the lives of the enemy to secure a Roman victory. Yo, that's... Okay, that sounds a lot like... uh... And this, this is kind of goes back to, like, maybe some of the ways that we talk about, you know, how a lot of demons, like, it's just clear from their names that they're, like, gods that got kind of translated to being demons. Right. Um, it's just cool because there's a lot of, like, uh, kind of media, at least with anime and stuff like that, where there's, like, devil contracts. Mm. And, like, some of the ways they kind of interpret or, or 
um, show the incarnation of a fear um, is really interesting because it's very close to how these epithets work. Um, like, especially with this one that you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the incarnation of it. Um, and, like, that contract, like, of essentially sacrificing yourself and the enemy to, for victory is just, like, super hardcore. Well, all of this sort of methodology of navigating the different aspects and facets of gods had to go somewhere once mm-hmm. things got real monotheistic, right? And they didn't yeah. take the route of having multiple names for God. They did sort of, but it was a mystical thing that's not necessarily doctrinal or very right. practical, right? Yeah. Um, there's sort of like the, the ineffable name of God. There's the Tetragrammaton. There's the I was going to say the Tetragrammaton. You know, there's all those things. And then there's also, I mean, I, you know, if you grew up anything like me in, in Evangelical Pentecostal, the amount of names we had for God was like unbelievable. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you know, whether it was like El, Elohim, Yahweh, Jehovah, and then there's all the different Jehovahs, Jehovah Jireh, yeah. Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi. You know, there was all songs mm-hmm. with them and all of that. And I'm like, Jehovah Jireh, is sufficient for me. This is polytheism. This is, that's what this yeah. is, guys. Why is no one saying it? You know, like, so, and then last but not least, we have, oh, really quickly, uh, Potter Mars was the one who usually got the regular, he, he was the regular recipient of the classic Mars offering. And the classic Mars offering to me is the coolest shit because it's it's just it's a fucking ancient Roman turducken, okay? Uh. It's the sacrifice of a pig, a ram, and a bull, okay? And sometimes inside of each other. Yes. Yes. So last but not least, we have Mars Ultor. Now Mars Ultor is Mars the Avenger. Yeah, that's sick. <laughs> His cult was created by Augustus to mark two occasions. The defeat of the assassins of Julius Caesar and the negotiated return of the Roman battle standards. That was like a big deal. Like, you know how you yeah. always see like the Romans with like the one guy that holds the thing that's got the eagle on it with the flag yeah. and you're like, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And mind you, apparently the bottom of that thing was sharp and he could actually attack people yeah, with it, it which like, thank Still God. Still a weapon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, He's not just like flag boy. Well, you don't want to be the guy marching into war and everybody else has, like, all their shit. You're the asshole with the trumpet. You're like, can I stand in the back? I'll, I'll blow it harder, I promise. So, yeah. So, basically, the god is depicted wearing a cuirass and helmet and standing in a martial pose, leaning on a lance that he holds in his right hand. He holds a shield in his left hand. And the interesting thing is, is that he was actually created by subsuming the goddess Ultio, who came way before him. She was the goddess, the the divine personification of vengeance and had an altar and a golden statue in his temple. So she wasn't, I shouldn't have said subsumed because she didn't disappear. She got incorporated into it and was seen as like the handmaiden and the executor of his vengeance, Hmm. which is wild. Yeah. Also, his temple was the site at which sacrifices were made to conclude the rites of passage of young men who, around the age of 14, would assume what was called the toga virilis, the man's toga. And it was like their growing up thing. And so that that was done at this temple. Your grown up toga. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think it might have been because maybe it was full length. I yeah. like the idea that the non-grown-up toga had, like, little god print on it. Like, yeah. you know, Spider-Man pajamas. Yeah, it's just, totally. like, little, little bitty Marses all over it. Aww. Oh, my God, I love that. Little so swords cute. and spears. 
So accompanying him, just as Enyo accompanies Ares, we have Bologna. Now, they're not actually counterparts. Bologna is an entirely original Roman goddess that a lot of people have they struggle with because they're like, well, she's kind of Athena, but she's kind of Enyo, but she's not actually either one. Like, how does this work? She's usually shown in a plumed helmet and armor. She's armed with a sword and spear. She carries a shield. She is also sometimes carrying a torch with a blood red flame. She rides into battle on a four horse chariot on her own. Thank you very much. That's nice. She's described as loud and active, barking orders and war cries. And she clashes her weapons together as she runs into battle. Yeah. She's credited with inspiring violence, starting wars, and goading soldiers into battle. Literally, soldiers that were afraid to fight, it was described as her riding in her chariot behind them, using a scourge or a whip, and bloodying their backs until they got into the fight for real. Badass. Yeah, it sounds so cool. <laughs> and she was, you know, believed to make wars and battles go well for those who invoked her. So, that's cool. Uh, she had a temple near the theater of Marcellus. She was always seen as Mars companion, although she's also known at various times she's called his wife, his daughter, his sister, his charioteer, or his twin sister. But she's always with him. And it's yeah. kind of odd seeing that whole thing. Because don't forget, Mars and Venus definitely still coupled up too, but didn't have the like stigma of adultery that they did in the Greek pantheon. Right. She was originally an ancient Sabine goddess of war that was identified with Nereo. Nereo is the consort of Mars, who... Do you remember when we talked about uh, Poseidon? And we talked about Neptune and how Neptune had, like, a wife and a consort who were actually supposed to be kind of like the personification of his powers? Yeah. That's what Nereo is. And so she was identified with Nereo and then Enyo. And there was a military cult of Bologna. And in this, she was associated with Virtus, the, the personification of valor. And she traveled outside Rome quite a lot with the Imperial Legions because her temples have been recorded in France, Germany, Britain, and North Africa. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she made it a really yeah. far away. And then you get to like Renaissance art and she like is war. Like she like is war. And then that also happened in our language. That's where we get the word belligerent from. That's where we get bellicose from. That's where we get antebellum from. The bell kind of meaning war is from her mm. in, in the Latin. Interesting. Yeah. So what do we think of Aries and Mars and everybody else that we talked about? Mars definitely like seems a lot more uh, put together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like yeah, more, I, definitely more like the adult version again. I feel like we've said this a couple times with a couple of them. It feels like more of the adult version, and Aries seems like a, you know, someone in their 20s who's all over the place. Yeah, I feel weird about this because normally it's the other way around, but I feel like Mars is more personable. Um, in the sense, and not in the sense of like tolerable, but like. I get a better sense of Mars as, like, a character. Because, like, Ares now feels to me much more like a force rather mm. than, like, an actual, like, embodied, like, person. And Whereas, like, I feel what? like normally the, like, the thing is that, the, like, the Roman gods are the kind of bigger conceptual that then get attached to Greek 
specifics, but right. I feel like it, here it feels the other way around, which might be because it's like Rome's one of main, like their main gods. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I think that what you're saying is completely supported by the fact that even the Greeks depicted him as just a soldier. They didn't depict yeah. him as anything he's, he's like necessarily a, yeah. special. There is he's something kind of generic about him. He's an archetypal soldier. That's his whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see like the animation of like just like a red kind of mist just going and animating like armor yeah that's Ares. it's just like in the uh, yeah totally and and then especially when you said like the opposites thing right like the applied or not applied um it makes it yeah it just kind of moves him more into like a force kind of category that's the red mist dissipating yeah Yeah. absolutely interesting yeah yeah i wonder because it's like i guess my thing is the Greeks, like, got around. Like, they knew about, like, a yeah. solid amount of other cultures. And they were always kind of, like, right up against... Well, not always, but they were up against Persia for a really long time, too. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, like, in terms of just, like, gods traveling and stuff. Like, how much... Like, in terms of the trade routes. Like, how much of that does actually just kind of move? Because, like, I think about, like, uh, you know the the tendency for a, like a great civilization to like have a book of war some kind of like war great war tactician book um and i feel like they're written uh kind of similarly like not necessarily even like referring to each other um so like i wonder like in terms of like the spirit of war like tacticians um like how much of that is influenced by like the idea of or the god of war traveling um, from like in between trade routes and like countries and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really kind of hard to get a grasp of his influence and his way in which he got around and all of that because we have such an Athenian centered mm-hmm. viewpoint that we're left with. Yeah. To figure stuff out, where he's always going to kind of be like the shoddy discount version of. you know what i mean like and that's kind of unfortunate you know because it's like well how the hell is he an olympian then you know what i mean like why is he like a non-entity yeah he he seems out of all of the olympians to have like the least amount of personality aside from talking shit and getting laid out yeah Yeah, it's true or ridiculed or embarrassed specific yeah but that does seem like it's just through that lens then it's like he's the one that they didn't care about as much and also you know for the greeks being as patriarchal as they are i'm like how did you set up this like pratfall douche bro yeah to be like yeah this is what happens when you're like a moron take a take a fucking lesson from this lady <laughs> over here about how war goes like wait a minute the greeks set this up like i don't well, know about that it's like they're athena athenians were like the the tech bro liberals who are like are technically yeah. kind of better than the <laughs> like it's only kind of kind of uh i think too like one i wonder if part of him being on olympus is propitiation for both him and hera in the mm. sense of like like none of your other children better be on olympus before our actual legitimate child is on olympus and then i think also like if Ares is that dangerous i don't want him just wandering around no fucking just <laughs> doing whatever the fuck he wants yeah i guess it's like a short leash kind of thing it might be a short leash thing he- and then i think too it's interesting that like you know in terms of sky gods we've kind of talked about this too where it's like 
it doesn't make sense for us to kind of go, well, they were all sky gods, so it's just, like, the same energy that just, like, diffused into different places. Blah, blah, blah. No. It's like, no, they had, like, leg- but, like, I think with, and that makes sense because of how, like, cultures respond to those big and main gods. I wonder, though, with war, um, if there's maybe a more permeable barrier there because of, like, again, like, early civilizations, like, their perspective on war regardless of how good they were at it was like yo this shit is costly mad people die it's a long time to recover from um unless we super sack someone and they're rich yeah so it's like i wonder if it was more permeable for like the idea of war to be like no our sky gods are different but that war dude sounds familiar you know Hmm. like as people are like trading stories about like their gods like on trade again like on trade routes yeah hearing about it across battle like the the screaming might be in a different language but it's the same evocative feeling right uh so i wonder if it's like because it's so you know like if we're describing aries it's kind of like more of that force more of that primal passion thing uh maybe for better or worse easier to communicate through yeah that's true well because everybody had murder yeah yeah. You know I mean? like, yeah so you know that's something that, that's something to bond over yeah well with that uplifting message we're gonna go ahead and close it out we love you guys thanks for tuning in don't kill anybody um, try not to murder anyone the aries bloodlust defense stopped being useful about two thousand five hundred years ago um so Thanks again for joining us for another episode of When God Was Queer. We love doing it, and we are so happy that you guys love tuning in. So if you want to get a hold of us and ask us any questions or tell us how you feel about the show, shoot us an email to whengodwasqueer at gmail.com or on Instagram or TikTok at whengodwasqueer. You can also jump on anchor.fm slash whengodwasqueer and leave us a fun little voice note, and we're going to probably do an upcoming episode where we compile them and have a lot of fun with them. So... Uh, other than Not that, only can you, but you should. But you should. But you're also, encouraged. Shout out to the two people who sent us fan mail last week and left us in fucking tears. Oh, yeah. Thank wow. you so oh, much yeah, for that. That was, that. That was really, really wild. intense fan mail. <laughs> that was beautiful. really intense, and it yeah. was great, and it really was like edifying. Of like, this is why we do this thing, and we love to hear from you guys. So don't be shy. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. So. We will wrap it there and uh, end it all with our war cry, uh, our din of war, our add some metal guitars in the background. Yeah. <laughs> like, we got to go in on it. Um, and so that's it from us. So we say to you, just like we do every week, be gay! Two crimes! The gods are always watching! Oh, shucks, y'all. It's over. Bye.